You're listening to the Health Disparities Podcast. Today, we bring you an urgent discussion focused on COVID-19, and we're going to discuss how underprivileged communities are at higher risk in this horrible pandemic. I'm your moderator, Dr. Mary O'Connor, Chair of Movement is Life, a multi-stakeholder coalition committed to eliminating health disparities and the sponsor of the Health Disparities Podcast. I'm joined by three experts. Dr. Ramon Jimenez is the president of the American Association of Latino Orthopedic Surgeons. Dr. Millicent Gorham is the executive director of the National Black Nurses Association. And finally, Dr. Yashika Watkins is professor of public health policy at Chicago State University. I'm really delighted to have these three experts join me for this very important conversation. So I'm going to start with just a few comments of background. I think everyone listening to this podcast understands that we are in an unprecedented global health crisis. Never in our lifetimes have we experienced a pandemic on such a scale and every aspect of our lives are impacted. What we're going to talk about today is how this pandemic is affecting different groups of people because the reality is, is not everyone is equally impacted. And I'm going to start with the panel's thoughts on underprivileged communities. And I will define underprivileged communities as communities of low income, whether they're rural or urban, whether they're African-American, Latino, or Caucasian. So the first question I have is, are communities of lower income at higher risk of more COVID-19 infections than higher income communities? And specifically, are individuals of color more susceptible to the virus? Dr. Jimenez, let's start with you. Thank you, Mary. It's a great opportunity, and I I hope that uh, people will learn something and that will help them cope uh, with this terrible pandemic that's going on. First of all, the simple answer to your question, if communities of low income are at higher risk of more COVID-19 infections than higher income communities, the answer is yes. And for several reasons, it's not only, uh, it may not only be secondary to Uh, individuals of color, because I do not believe the virus knows color, does not know race, does not know ethnicities. It actually will have come to find out it doesn't really know higher income or lower income. What the virus is, is persistent, it's silent, and it is there. Now, the incidence is higher in these populations, not because they are of color, but more than likely because of they experience decre- decreased abilities to socially distant and also because they suffer from comorbidities. So, Dr. Jimenez, first, let me just clarify. The virus knows 
no color of, of one's skin. So regardless of your gender, race, or ethnic background, anyone can get sick with this virus. I think we know that, correct? Yes. Um, but you believe that there are differences for underprivileged communities relative to this pandemic. Yes. Okay. So I know you're getting ready to tell us more about that, but I just wanted to highlight those points for our audience. Well, first of all, comorbidities exist in, in, uh, in such communities. And let me tell you what I mean by a comorbidity. Those are diagnoses or diseases that are suffered by certain populations because of genetics, because of environment, because of lack of healthcare uh, access. Uh, one of those com comorbidities is diabetes. And diabetes is a, a higher prevalence, or it's found higher in individuals of color. Uh, it is well known that uh, the incidence of diabetes, specifically diabetes type two, uh, or mature onset diabetes is found in higher degrees in African-Americans, but even higher in Hispanic Americans. And a lot of that has to do with, with diet uh, because you don't find this, let's take uh, uh, the Mexican community. Uh, you do not find, if they go back to the indigenous uh, Mexican in Mexico, uh, they do not have higher instances of diabetes. But here, when they migrate to the United States and take on different habits of eating, uh, because of different reasons, in other words, it could be that you can't afford to go to, to buy good produce or there may not be a good grocery stores available in your in where you live uh, and that, therefore you don't have the opportunity or you don't have the financial means. Uh, one of my colleagues uh, talks about the, who is an internist in Cleveland, talks about the fact that in her neighborhood around her office, she finds many fast food places and all of these fast food places are not real nutritious and not really good and do foster an increased uh, prevalence uh, towards those factors that will lead towards diabetes. So the second uh, comorbidity uh, that I would like to point out is that of obesity. And that can be secondary to lack of movement, becoming more uh, sedentary and uh, and eating the, the wrong foods, if you would. Uh, so the result is that you become obese and that carries with it a lot of compromises. And I think that obesity and diabetes are really married to each other. They're, they're, it's almost you don't find one without the other or eventually. Uh, and so I think that uh, it is something that we have to uh, be aware of uh, and, and try to combat 
if we're going to make any progress because it's well known that COVID-19, this virus, uh, attacks and affects uh, patients who have the diagnosis of diabetes. Dr. Jimenez, thank you. Uh, Dr. Watkins, from the public health perspective, um, how important uh, is this discussion regarding uh, underprivileged communities in terms of how we're going to address this pandemic and even future pandemics? It's very important to um, chronic disease management. It's very important to um, novel coronavirus. We know, um, as Dr. Mendez just said, um, people with type 2 diabetes um, and also people with cardiovascular disease, um, it can be conditions such as high blood pressure puts you at increased risk for severe illness. Um, we see these diseases in high proportions in minority communities. Um, so from a public health standpoint, um, it's very important that we um, really educate the public about um, this notion of social distancing, um, proper disease management. Um, disease management is so critical in self-care activities. So um, making sure that you're eating a healthy diet, um, exercising, um, keeping your sugars down, taking your medications, for example, for high blood pressure. Um, all of these self-care activities are really going to be critical um, to a person being able to withstand something as novel coronavirus. Um, we, as Dr. Mena says, it knows no color. It's not... Um, um, anyone is susceptible to it. So um, it's even more important for people with chronic illnesses um, and um, and the like um, in terms of other comorbidities really, really take um, a serious um, perspective on um, trying to make sure that they are managing their condition as best as possible and also reducing the spread to um, others. Um, so again, going back to that social distancing, um, if you um, have friends who, um, um, for example, in older communities, and I'm sure that you have friends that are also um, in your same um, cohort and your same contemporaries. So you want to reduce the spread of the disease to them. If you're sick, stay home. Um, and really just get people to understand this is serious. Um, this is something that we shouldn't take lightly. And um, Really, the way to weather this storm is to be as healthy as you can be, um, engaging um, in those healthy activities. And if you haven't um, started doing that, realizing that it is time to make a behavior change um, and try and get yourself um, as healthy as possible in case you are um, impacted by the disease. So I think what I'm hearing is for those individuals who are diabetic right now, Yes, you're at higher risk, but you can lower that risk if you keep your diabetes under good control. Correct? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And so the same it, and the again, same with high blood pressure, right? Because we have a lot exactly. of people, particularly individuals of color with high blood pressure, who may not focus as well as they could or as well as their doctors want them to on controlling their blood pressure. And so if they control their blood pressure better, they would be lowering their risk. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and, and um, 
if you in, in academia, we often talk about this notion of stages of change, a trans theoretical model. And if you again, if you have not made a behavior change, um, you should you should start contemplating the need to make a behavior change to withstand um, novel coronavirus and other viruses. Um, so this is just about you know it, it, the immediate um, um, burden right now is novel coronavirus, but long term we need to be thinking about just getting healthy in general. Um, if if um, you aren't healthy, you're not going to be able to fight infectious diseases um, like novel coronavirus. So it's important to um, um, think about these stages of change. Where are you in the six stages of change? Are you a pre-contemplator? Have you been thinking about it? And maybe you need to move to being a contemplator. Um, and, and from a contemplator, actually taking some action, realizing the importance of taking action and how getting healthy is so key to being able to manage um, infectious disease. So um, this is not only for patients, but also for providers, helping their patients um, in those six stages of change, um, helping them make a behavior change. And for those that have already made a behavior change, um, helping those patients continue to be in the maintenance stage um, of maintaining that behavior change. So, Dr. Watkins, I, I think there'll be listeners out there who already have diabetes or hypertension or maybe they're not so healthy. And they might be saying, well, it's too late for me. I mean, I'm already not in the best of health and the pandemic is here. Why should I make the effort to change now? It's too late. How would you respond to that individual? I would tell that person it's not too late. Um, it's actually never too late. Um, you can take action today. Um, now, is, now is the time. Um, take action today. And you need to take action because lives are at stake. Your life is at stake. Your, um, your sister, your cousin, your mother's life is at stake. So um, it's, it's not too late. And if you need help um, with making a behavior change, then certainly um, talk to your primary care physician about um, ways you can get support in making a behavior change. Um, you have all type of healthcare professionals at your disposal. So make the change now um, so that you are in a better position if you are exposed to novel coronavirus, um, are able to fight it. Dr. Jimenez, I'd just like your, your thoughts on that question. I practice in a community in California uh, where I live that is about 65 to 70% uh, Hispanic Latino. And it also has is an affluent community in the west side, if you would, and, and on the east side where the agriculture is, it's it's more heavily concentrated Hispanic Latino. But when I see my patients, and even though I'm an orthopedic surgeon, I try and I, and I ask them in the history uh, about diabetes, and they will tell me, yes, they have diabetes. They do know it's usually type 2 diabetes, and they do tell me they're on the regular medications such as metformin or something like that. But when I ask them the question, do you know what a hemoglobin A1C is? 80 to 90% do not know. I mean, I'm delighted when one knows and says, oh, yes, yeah, so my last one I checked was 6.8. So, I Dr. Jimenez, just educate all of our listeners on what a hemoglobin A1C is, please. I will. Uh, 
I'm very excited to congratulate him because I point out to them the hemoglobin A1C test that is usually done by your primary care physician is done at about every three months because it measures the amount of glucose in the red blood cells uh, over the six, eight, 12 week period. And it's not just like a, a one-time test you take in the morning, like a fasting blood sugar, uh, like you're probably advised to do, in which it only measures what's going on in your blood at that hour, because it can change right after you eat, it can spike up. So this is more of a, a level and a true uh, indication on how well controlled your diabetes is, and it's something that you should expect, ask for from your primary care provider, and I'm sure if you ask for it, uh, it will be done. I want to turn our conversation for a moment um, towards other factors that could put uh, low-income individuals at risk of infections and bad outcomes with COVID-19. Dr. Gorham, I'd really love your thoughts and comments on these other, I would say, kind of um, communal or structural factors that could be impacting um, our more vulnerable communities. Thank you very much, Mary. I appreciate uh, being on this call. One of the major things that I like to talk about is close housing in the A lot more poor communities, we find that they're in large apartment buildings like those that you may see in Chicago and New York. People are very close with each other. They're living very close with each other. They're on these tall build, in tall buildings with long elevators and taking long elevator rides and they're not gonna be six feet apart from each other. So I think that that's one issue that we need to really begin to look at is how do we deal with the housing situation uh, within our within our communities. Along with that is to make sure that they continue to get all of us, not only poor people, but everybody continue to get access to preventive care. As the doctors indicated earlier in terms of vaccinations, uh, the coronavirus is but one uh, virus. Uh, We all need to be vaccinated for particularly adults, particularly children uh, who can be more at risk because they're more vulnerable, more fragile, making sure that they get their flu shots, making sure that they get their pneumonia shots. Um, That's one of the things that the coronavirus then translates into is is pneumonia. very tragic for those that may also have asthma. And asthma also comes in with comes into play when we're talking about, uh, again, dense populations and dense housing. And so, as well as in relationship to uh, environmental changes that we need to be dealing with in this country. So when you kind of pull all of those together and look at it from the standpoint of, of housing, the environment, uh, what those pretend for the coronavirus and what those pretend for changing the infrastructures in our community to make them much more stable will go a long way to helping out with the coronavirus and other kinds of pandemics that I hope 
we will never have to get to. But let me just say one thing about it. This coronavirus doesn't have any color attached to it or poor people or, or rich people attached to it. But it brought something home to me as I was listening to uh, Dr. Fauci in my bed on the Friday before the um, International Day of, of, for Women. It was on a Friday morning and he was talking about people over 60 sure are much more at risk and uh, they shouldn't be taking long train plane rides or traveling very far, uh, that they, if they have an underlying chronic disease like hypertension or diabetes, that they're more at risk and they need to make sure that they're doing more hand washing and staying six feet away from, from other people. And I was in my bed and I was going, uh-huh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wait a minute, he's talking about me. <laughs> So it made me stop um, as I was thinking about going to a professional basketball game with thousands of people that Sunday night for the International Day of, of the Woman. And it made me stop to think about this is no joke. We've got to be very careful about all of those risks factors, uh, whether you're poor, whether you're middle income or whether you're rich, that all of us uh, can be susceptible. But we need to make sure that we take care of the most vulnerable populations. I um, am on the board of the United Medical Center in far southeast Washington, D.C. It is a, uh, in Anacostia, it's in Ward 7 and 8. It's the only hospital in those wards and taking care of very vulnerable populations. The first two coronavirus patients in Washington, D.C. were diagnosed at that hospital. And when thinking about the populations that the residents that live there, the citizens that live in those communities who need to have those critical uh, clinics and hospitals um, services, and we just need to make sure that the public health um, infrastructure is available to take care of them before they get to the point of really needing to be in that hospital. So let's talk about how medicine right now is trying to adjust to this pandemic. And I can share at my own institution at Yale, you know, we have stopped all elective surgeries. We have very few patients that we're seeing in the clinic now for face-to-face -face visits, only really urgent patients. And we are trying to provide as much care as we can through telehealth, getting patients connected through a portal in the electronic medical record so that I can do a video visit with them. Certainly not the same ability uh, for me to make a diagnosis because I cannot do a physical exam, but better than nothing in the face of the pandemic. I'm interested in the panel's thoughts, and I'll just ask each of you to comment about how effective you see this transition to using telehealth as a resource in the pandemic uh, for how effective you think that can be for lower income communities. So, Dr. Jimenez, let me start with you. 
in short, it, uh, telemedicine or can be very effective. The physical examination is very important, but a lot of what we gain uh, towards a diagnosis from a patient is what the patient relates to me and how the patient expresses how they have symptoms, how it came on, where it it affects them now, how do they feel now. And so I I believe that uh, telemedicine really has a a place. It also, uh, it's not a, it is a safeguard for the patient and it's a safeguard for the healthcare provider in a sense. Um, if I believe that as many as much as 50, 60, 70% of patient visits face to face can be eliminated with a FaceTime or other video uh, type of conferencing, if you would, or a video call, just a phone call might, might do also. In the Latino community, they are very uh, tied to their phones and they use text messaging and they use video. One of the drawbacks, sometimes it may require Wi-Fi and Wi-Fi is not always found in their homes. But if they have a a phone, they can connect uh, that way and being able to communicate in that manner. In short, I think it's a, I think it's a boon. Uh, Dr. Watkins, uh, appreciate your comments on this. So telehealth um, and telemedicine and public health has been something that has um, be, become recognized as a standard of care and has, um, is gaining increasing prevalence as a standard of care. Um, is used a lot in public health for two reasons, um, for um, allowing underserved communities to have improved their access to care. And particularly, um, we haven't talked yet, but uh, when we think about rural areas, um, rural populations, um, they have increased access as well through telehealth. Um, as Dr. Jimenez has already mentioned, in the Hispanic population, um, there's a high frequency of mobile cell phone use. We've seen that a lot in the black um, or African-American populations. There have been a lot of public health studies done with using um, mobile health or mHealth for, for short, um, where people have used test messages as a way um, of, for example, sending reminders about moving um, for physical activity um, um, intervention studies that has been widely tested and widely used. But going back to the discussion of rural health, um, telehealth and telemedicine are really important, particularly in rural populations, because um, the data shows that only one-third of um, rural households, um, all, excuse me, almost one-third of rural households do not have Internet in the home. Um, and it, that's for a variety of reasons. Um, I think when people think about um, rural sectors, we think about agricultural areas, But really, when we think about the rural economy, what we should think about is um, there is a high percentage of rural workers that are employed in the service sector. And with those type of jobs, you tend to have lower wages. Um, And so that translates to, um, obviously, disparities in education and health, um, access to food, for example. 
Um, so um, telehealth and telemedicine are really um, useful tools in public health because it, it can get a wider spread. Um, 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 it, it's, it's more far-reaching. Um, and um, in public health, one of one of the um, the three big ways um, that we're trying to improve health is through access, cost, and quality. And telehealth and telemedicine does that, improves access to health. A lot of our focus initially with this pandemic is on our big cities and hospitals in big cities running out of beds or ventilators. But we also need to recognize that we've seen record closures of rural hospitals and that we have millions of Americans actually that live in counties where they don't even have an ICU. Some of the rural hospitals uh, and some of the bigger hospitals in the cities are who have regional or rural hospitals are closing the rural hospitals in order to concentrate the healthcare personnel, healthcare equipment in the bigger hospital in the city. And I'm sure that this is having, will have a direct effect in this ep- epidemic with those, those communities in the rural areas. Dr. Gorm, your thoughts, please. I just wanted to jump in, thank you very much. I had a conversation with one of our nurses that's down in Miami Garden. She's a retired nurse, but she's been volunteering at a rescue mission clinic. And what they decided to do was to go to telehealth, telemedicine. And one of the reasons is because, again, we're talking about uh, a rescue mission with homeless Uh, men and women and children. They wanted to protect the provider as well as protect the uh, patients and not have so many patients in uh, a clinic all at one time. And so they decided to put together a uh, telehealth program that she was just setting up this week and to make sure that she and her colleagues, she has a a physician assistant who's working with her, um, who is a volunteer in one site, and she has a paid physician assistant in another site. So that's where they're going to be, how they're going to be providing health care at that particular rescue mission. The other issue is around people with compromised immune systems. And the, there have been healthcare systems who've, who've had appointments with patients with compromised immune uh, systems and basically just told them, don't even come over here. I can take care of you through telehealth. Let's do this either by telephone or let's just do this by, uh, by computer and we can just look at each other and talk to each other and figure out what's going on and uh, do it that way because they d- really did not want the patient patients uh, coming to the, the healthcare facilities. Well, I, I think uh, I'll agree with one of the comments that was made earlier that uh, the application of telehealth uh, is here to stay. And, and the probably one good thing from this pandemic is that it has really accelerated our adoption of this. And I think that's a positive. I, I do, however, have, a, have some concerns about lack of access 
to hospitals for individuals that live in rural America. You know, we know that we've seen record numbers of hospital closures in rural America. Now, we've seen inner city hospitals that uh, serve traditionally the the underinsured close as well from financial pressures like Hahnemann uh, University Hospital in Philadelphia. But we're seeing a lot of hospitals in rural America close. We're seeing counties, uh, whole counties in this country that have no access to an intensive care unit bed. And so while telehealth is a way of delivering some health care, I'm concerned for those individuals that when they get really sick, whether that's all of a sudden they develop shortness of breath uh, with COVID-19 or whether they need urgent access because maybe they're having a stroke or a heart attack, uh, that you know, telehealth is not going to address their needs in that moment. And the compromise of our infrastructure in terms of facilities really um, makes can negatively impact their outcomes. Uh, Dr. Jimenez, um, could you comment on that? Well, everything you say is true, uh, Mary. The, uh, uh, and it is frightening to sit as a, as a physician and to see that these rural hospitals are closing and I, I can just imagine, just in my own setting, uh, we have some pretty sophisticated hospitals. They're not very big, but they're here uh, within 10 miles of us in the two adjacent cities. But only 35 miles down the road, there is a smaller hospital that has, I believe, 50 beds, and usually only about 20 are filled. And they have one intensive care unit bed or two at the most. And so they've come to rely on helicopters, if you would. Uh, and they don't have a helicopter station there, but a helicopter to come in, evacuate a patient if they're having a, something acute, like a heart attack or so, so they get some cardiovascular intervention. But, you know, that, I'm sure that there is a, increased risk of loss of life or or an adverse outcome because of the fact that the rural hospitals are not being supported. I learned, on another note, I learned just yesterday, I believe, that larger hospitals in the city uh, who happen to have a smaller regional hospital uh, miles away, be it 20 30 miles away, are closing the smaller hospitals in order to bring healthcare personnel, healthcare equipment into the bigger hospital, the mother hospital, if you would, in downtown uh, city, and uh, thereby stranding, leaving those patients uh, with uh, even less of an opportunity to get immediate healthcare for other emergencies. And Dr. Jimenez, uh, the healthcare systems are closing those smaller hospitals to condense resources to the hub because they're they're worried about exposure of their healthcare providers. Or I mean, what ex- why exactly are they closing these smaller well, outlying hospitals? 
Well, uh, in general, uh, I'm not speaking in general. What I'm talking about now is because of the uh, increased need for healthcare personnel and healthcare equipment to uh, fight the COVID-19 uh, virus. The uh, if you're talking about in uh, outside of the uh, COVID-19, then they're closing those uh, those hospitals. I hate to say it, it's for bottom line reasons. And right. uh, I, and this is not good uh, because it just portends to more healthcare disparities. Right, not good. And then even worse in a pandemic because if your closest hospital is a smaller hospital, uh, that hospital could be at risk of those, those workers, basically those healthcare providers uh, being directed to the hub, right. which, which which further decreases your personal access for urgent services if you or your loved one needs them. Exactly. Yeah, and I know. Yes, Dr. O'Connor, it's not it's not just the uh, hospitals that are closing. Is my understanding from talking with some of my nurses that they're not getting the supplies that they need, particularly particularly to federally qualified health centers and some of, because they're not getting the supplies that they need, whatever those supply, all, all the supplies that, that would help them in normal times. Um, the coronavirus, of course, is, is increasing the need for those supplies that they're going to have to close down some of the FQ. Uh, FQHCs until they're able to until that supply chain supplies them with the with the appropriate amount of uh, supplies that they need to take care of patients. Dr. Gorham, that is uh, that is also a frightening scenario. We um, are low, as we all know, and I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast has heard about how critically low we as hospitals and the healthcare system is on PPE, personal protective equipment, meaning the right kind of masks uh, that a doctor or nurse or healthcare provider needs to wear to help protect that healthcare provider from getting the infection from a patient. And the more healthcare providers uh, that we lose that have to leave the job because of illness, uh, the more stress the system. Uh, so these are all very serious issues. I want to I want to go back and explore a little bit more the telehealth um, concept and transition that we're making relative to trust in the medical system. And Dr. Gorham, I'm going to ask you to take this question first, and then others, of course, can uh, chime in. But we know that there has that there has been historically a certain level of mistrust uh, in the African American community relative to the medical system. And do you have any concerns about telehealth, um, either? being a positive bridge to promoting more trust or perhaps being a greater barrier for patients uh, to overcome in terms of having trust in the system? That's a great question. I think that overall that African-American people want to be touched. They want hands-on. They want someone to talk to. Sometimes they're taking their loved ones 
younger people, older people with them to the to be seen by a healthcare provider, and they want to make sure that they're having they have advocates there for them to translate and ask the right kind of questions. But they still want at the end of the day, they still want someone to lean over and put that stethoscope on them. They want someone to hold their hand and look them in the eye and tell them that here are all, here are all your options. And I'm not sure whether or not telehealth will do that. Now, that being said on one side, there are more and more uh, younger people, people who are more middle-aged who are beginning to look at it as a, a way of, I don't have to take the time off from work. I don't have to take a time off to go to travel very far. I can do this in my office. I can do this in my home. Uh, I can get to the doctor and have a quick uh, conversation with the doctor. I don't have to wait in an office. I don't have to be around other sick people. And they may look at this as a bonus and a benefit to them to get excellent health care um, in a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. Dr. Jimenez, how, do you see any trust issues with telemedicine with the Latina community? No, I don't. Um, I think that, uh, uh, as been said before, they are they are quite used to social media. They are used to using WhatsApp in particular, with which is and they can do it in the face, which is like FaceTime, uh, and they do it quite frequently. Uh, I find that. If the if the healthcare provider is shows empathy, and you don't have to be present face to face to show empathy, if they can see you and you ask the right empathic questions, um, they will uh, immediately buy into what you're doing and trust you. Uh, the Latino Hispanic Latino. Uh, Populations usually come from countries that uh, their doctors there, their healthcare providers, doctors uh, practice medicine in a patriarchal manner. So they uh, do not practice uh, and come to share decisions. In other words, they don't. They tell the patient what's going to be done and what is best for them and the patient out of respect um, carries it out the but when you walk in and, and are empathic with the patient and engage the patient they buy in to the fact that they can contribute and you listen to them i think that uh, you can come to a excellent outcome that's that's very encouraging. Um, I want to change the the uh, focus for a moment to effective engagement with um, our various communities in terms of healthcare messaging. Um, we all know and have heard how essential it is that we practice social distancing, and then we see. Um, 
news reports of college students partying on the beach in Florida or people going out to bars, uh, you know, on a weekend. And then, of course, cities and towns and states responding with closing the beaches or, you know, banning restaurants and bars to only take out. And so it seems to me that somehow we have missed an effective communication with at least some segment of the population. Maybe that's mostly younger people, younger adults. Um, I don't think this is limited to one race or ethnicity, uh, but I would appreciate everyone's thoughts because uh, we can't effectively control a pandemic when we can't get people to abide by the need for social distancing. How could we do better? And are there specific messages to certain populations or groups of people uh, that, that we need to change to be more effective? I think we need to send the message to everyone and send it to them in different ways. I've had conversations with the, uh, the millennials, not the Gen Zs, but the millennials who've been trying to get their baby boomer we're talking about me now, not me, <laughs> uh, get their baby boomer parents to stay home and not to go out to have social events with their, with their family members. Family members, friends, girlfriends. Uh, one friend told me about um, two sets of baby boomers who decided, oh, what the heck, before all of the uh, restaurants were closed, that they were going to go out for dinner. Another friend talked about, uh, uh, she tried to get her mom to, to cancel her theater tickets. And her mom was like, you know, I'm, I'm going out. I'm dealing with this. I'm going out. I'm going to enjoy my life. I'm not going to let this cause me any fear. And the, the daughter talked, you know, tried very hard to talk her, her mom out of it. And the only thing that stopped her mom was, again, the, the city closed down all the theaters. So I, uh, the, the message has to be done in, in, in different kinds of ways for different kinds of people. We, uh, I had a friend who sent over an a email, um, Facebook message the other night, uh, about her neighbors. She was gonna call the police on her neighbors because at 11 o'clock, a whole bunch of cars drove up to the house and they started partying. So it's what part of this message that you're not getting? But part of that message is when you see some of the musicians, the celebrities that are singers and they're having these songs about the coronavirus and you know they're, they're dancing and it, and it really says, it said to me anyway, well, we're still going to talk about this, but we can still party at the same time. And you can't do both. Uh, this virus is just too deadly and it needs to be taken into, uh, taken seriously. The Chicago public school system sent a letter to all of the parents. I, I saw the letter that was sent out and telling them about why they're closing the, the school systems the school system down and and how and how long it may be down not uh, dealing with not only spring break but also dealing with the coronavirus situation but it's also how you transmit that message to your kids 
You know, you, your kids are still want to have play dates. They still want to go out to the park. But you have to be able to tell them, no, this is not a party time. This is not vacation time. Your, your friend across the street, your neighborhood friend across the street that you've been playing with for years cannot come over and spend the night over here. So it's all in how you translate that, um, translate that message. At my church, we closed down. I, I attend one of the largest churches in, the, uh, in, in Maryland. All of these pastors got together and said, we're closing down. We're not taking chances with our with our parishioners. Uh, we're just going to have to go to live stream. So now we're live streaming worship service. We're live stream prayer meeting. The only thing they can't live live stream, which I've been trying to get them to do, is to have <laughs> a happy hour on Friday, starting with gospel music, and I can just go out on my porch and just sing until I'm until I'm done. But you know, so. Every, every community needs to be able to, to get that message in different ways and tell them in different ways how serious this, this virus is and that it's lethal and that it's not anything to, be, to, to play around with. And we have to be serious about that six-foot six rule. Uh, I told my nieces, uh, they were they were going to have some company over and one of my nieces objective. I said, well, then you're going to have to have the 10 foot rule, the 10 feet rule. Okay. If you want to stay healthy, you're going to have to obey the rules. That's, that's the new normal. That is the new normal. Dr. Watkins, your, your comments or thoughts on this, how could we be more effective at messaging uh, these public health policies that essentially disrupt our lives and impose change on us, how can we be more effective in getting people to comply? I think with the younger generation, and particularly the Gen Z, that Dr. Gorham mentioned, I think they need to see um, people that look like them that are suffering from the virus. Um, the narrative, um, at least in the beginning, were, was that... Um, uh, the baby boomers were being hospitalized and, and experiencing morbidity and even mortality from the virus. But um, there have been a lot of reports, um, some out of um, Europe um, and some from um, Asia as well, that talked about how young people have been hospitalized as a result of having the virus. Um, there was one report on um, MSNBC where um, a spring breaker was interviewed in, on, um, in Florida on one of the beaches, and he said, well, if I get coronavirus, I'll just deal with it. He says, but in the meantime, I'm going to continue partying. Um, again, I, I think it reminds me of um, the the campaigns back in the 80s and 90s, the drug campaigns when they were trying to get people to not um, use drugs and they would crack the egg and put it in a, in a hot frying pan and say, this is your, your brain on drugs. I think people, young people need to see someone like them suffering from it to realize this can happen to me. That person is just like me. This can happen to me. Um, for older generations, I was talking to someone recently, um, a baby, baby boomer, and this person said to me, and I haven't heard this in a long time, but they said, oh, we're just going to pray this away. Oh my goodness. And I thought, 
I thought that was interesting. Um, I've heard that. I remember when I was in um, doing my dissertation in the doctoral program, I heard that a lot about type 2 diabetes. Um, and I would talk to participants about being a part of the research study, and they said, oh, I'll be in your study, but I'm going to be praying this type 2 diabetes away. And when it's gone, I won't, I won't, I won't um, any longer need to be in any diabetes studies. So it, it brought me back to that time and this idea of in some church communities, is um, is yes, we'll stop our services, we'll do live streams, but we need to be praying this virus away. And um, you know, it has to be a collaborative effort. Yes, you can pray and and ask God for healing, um, but and for treatment. But at the same time, there is um, when I say collaborative, when we t- think about religious coping styles, it's, it's a personal responsibility. So you working with God, um, you taking personal responsibility that you you have personal and social responsibility to take this seriously and um, engage in um, social distancing, hand washing, sanitizing, um, staying away from um, vulnerable populations. There's been a five-year-old that's tested positive here in the New York City area for coronavirus. So this this not only does it not have a a, um, a face in terms of race ethnicity, but in terms of age, anyone is susceptible to this, and no matter who gets it, is serious. So the messaging has to differ based off the the age group. Thank you, thank you. I think those are really important points. Um, I just I I feel the um, I'm compelled to comment. Uh, that I do think that those of us that believe in a higher power, it is, it's a good thing for us to ask for more divine help. Um, I believe all healing comes from the divine healer, but we have to do our part to be responsible um, with practicing the, the measures that we know help keep us safe. You know, we praying away COVID-19 is not, in my opinion, going to be effective. And I know that's what you're saying, Dr. Watkins, as well. Um, Dr. Jimenez, how about, uh, what are your thoughts on this relative to the Hispanic community? Well, uh, let me tell you a little story. Uh, and that is uh, has to do with an individual named Ramon Jimenez. <laughs> and as, in, as in you, Dr. Jimenez? As in my grandfather. Oh, your grandfather. Okay, uh, excellent. My grandfather was 41 years old, and 100 years ago, 1920, 21, he uh, was living and working. Uh, he had some acreage that he was working the field. Uh, and this was at 9,000 feet in the mountains of Jalisco, Mexico. And he came up with a dry cough, and he, a few days later, was in uh, in bed and then died. And this was from the equine encephalitis epidemic of 1918-20. And this was in a village of 150 people at 9,000 feet up in the mountains. 34 out of 150 people died, and there was 
a mass burial that my father remembers uh, being six years old. And so I think that that younger people, most populations, have to be scared into this. And this is this is why I think more emphasis, more publication of history, uh, uh, because we've lived this before. The United States has gone through this before. And uh, if without social distancing in some communities in the United States during that time, uh, historians have stated that uh, more than the estimated 675,000 Americans who died out of the 20 million who died worldwide, uh, more would have died without social distancing that they, they practiced in 1918 and 1920 here in the United States. So it's, it's very important. And then that brings me just to another, uh, not story, but it was in the New York Times today or yesterday about a community in your state, Perry, uh, Westport community. And there was a party, and this was an affluent community. There was a party for a 40-year-old birthday party for an individual, and friends from all over came, being of affluence, and one stopped by, who happened to be traveling through from South Africa. And the individual happened to be in South Africa, and he was traveling home. So he was at that party, and I think the party was about two, three weeks ago. And uh, on his way home to South Africa, he got ill, and he ended up testing positive for uh, COVID-19. And I believe they stated that 20 out of the 50, 60 people that were at this party have also tested positive. Mm -hmm. And so the virus does not know uh, like we said, does not know color, does not know socioeconomic status, it doesn't, it's just there. And uh, uh, this is why I believe that we really have to be vigilant, careful, and scare the hell out of some people. So I, I want to draw this to a close and really thank all of the, uh, the panelists. I, I think the comments have been um, very helpful and hopefully our listeners have uh, enjoyed this and learned some important um, uh, information uh, from the podcast. I want to reiterate just some main points that, that uh, have been raised. Uh, this virus can be deadly and all of us need to take the public health measures very seriously and embrace social distancing. Um, we know that the virus is colorblind. It's, it's income blind. Um, anyone can become infected. And we also know that diabetes is much more prevalent in our communities of color, namely African-Americans and Hispanic Latino communities. Um, so asking those those individuals to be particularly um, vigilant uh, in protecting themselves, I think is really important. Um, 
I just want to ask if um, everyone for a couple closing uh, comments, and we'll wrap it up. So, Dr. Jimenez, we'll start with you. Well, to wrap up, I really think that this is a a battle that we are all in together, and we have to look at it that we are together in this, and it's not and not point fingers at other people that they ought to do this, they ought to do that, or uh, or so. So act as we are all in this together. And I heard a phrase the other day, what I really think is appropriate for social distancing and all that is to act as if you are COVID-19 positive. So if you did that, and you really care about your family, friends, older individuals, younger individuals, then you will act appropriately and you will be doing appropriate social distance. Dr. Gorham, closing comment? My closing comment is that the frontline workers, the nurses, the physicians, the physician assistants, all of the health workers, uh, first responders, the police officers, the firefighters, all of them need to be commended. I'm asking that everyone stay healthy, stay safe, stay blessed, but Amen. also uh, be reminded that our infrastructure is one that needs to be strengthened, both in the urban centers as well as in the rural centers and that we need everybody's help in making sure that we have a better healthcare system in this country. Amen, sister, amen. Um, Dr. Watkins, last comment. No, my um, parting comments are, I think of um, what we um, talked about earlier, this idea of common humanity, being respectful of each other. Um, and respect looks, it looks different um, to different people, but in terms of novel coronavirus, um, not, um, as Dr. Jimenez said, not pointing fingers, um, not being xenophobic, blaming Asians for this virus, calling it Chinese virus, but realizing that, um, you know, globally we're all suffering from this and we have to help each other. This is a time of, of um, this is our time to shine as um, humans and um, help each other and really respect each other um, in terms of um, being healthy, um, being um, responsible, um, and um, giving people the space they need. Six feet. <laughs> six feet. Yes, we all need six feet. That's the space that we need. Um, panelists, I want to thank you so much for the generosity of your time and expertise. And to our listeners, thank you for joining this Health Disparities podcast. And on behalf of all of us at Movement is Life, um, be safe out there. Movement is Life is committed to sharing with you more important information in this pandemic. We understand that COVID-19 is not impacting all of us equally, but yet we are all vulnerable. So we look forward to you joining us for future podcasts where we bring you important information and conversations to help us in this global dialogue. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye.